We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. You know, this Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students. America first. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of We the Deplorables. Uh, My name is Sherry Wilson. I am your host. This is a place for safe conversation for those of us that love faith, family, and freedom. And we discuss topics that are relevant not only to America, but also uh, to the church, to Christians, Christ followers, the ecclesia, however you want to phrase that. Basically, people that believe that uh, God is the one true God, not government, and Jesus Christ is his son by which we must be born again. Uh, so our identity is derived from that, not from those who try to tell us who we are. And I normally save good news for the end of the episode, but I do want to alert you that the pushback against government mandated uh, shots is definitely growing. Uh, we know that the, uh, I think it's either Southwest or American, I can't remember, or maybe both, are protesting. Uh, they're doing what's called a sick out. Now, they can't say that they're protesting the shots because it is illegal uh, for them to do so. But more and more Americans are standing up for their rights. And hopefully they will continue to push back because what's going to make these people lay off is enough of us protesting, uh, peaceful protests, of course, but making those decisions that we're not going to go with an authoritarian mandate. Uh, Many of us, myself included, I've already had it. And uh, I like to use those words because if you use the other word, you might just get shut down and your podcast taken uh, down completely. Uh, I already have natural things going on. I don't need any unnatural things, aborted fetal tissue, etc., in my body. And so for a lot of people, it's like, well, this is America. We don't want this. And hopefully they will continue because it's working in other countries. More and more countries, the people are pushing back and they're rolling back their authoritarian decisions. The interesting thing is you like a lot of people are like, well, why, what's the big deal? I mean, you know, we have vaccinations for diphtheria and measles and mumps, etc. Well, the thing is, is that what we're facing now is more along the lines of a flu shot. There's, it is going to continue to morph with measles, mumps, etc. It doesn't morph. It's the same. Uh, in fact, I have no problem you not even getting those with your children because um, increased you know rate of autism since we've uh, been doing these as well as uh, religious objection. But it's not the same. It is not the same as childhood vaccinations. And so hopefully the American people will continue to push back. So uh, on the other side of it, um, you know, I've really this week, I have had to uh, think back to when Peter needed to pay taxes for himself and for the Lord. And the Lord said to go fish. And the whole idea of paying taxes was aggravating to the people of Israel and the Lord's like, Hey, who's on the, who's on the money? And, you know, pay to Caesar, uh, what is due Caesar? And I had to pay a big tax bill. Now the good news is we have prospered probably more than any time in the history of my marriage with my husband. My business is growing and thriving. Um, I've got bigger plans because there's a kingdom assignment, but man, I had just gotten out of debt. I had gotten, I think, a third of the way to our six-month savings emergency fund, 
and it got wiped out to pay taxes. So it is time uh, to get smart, get a good accountant, uh, and help um, get help to lower our taxes, of course, legally and ethically. But man, it was a big hit. So I've been like, you know what? Pay to Caesar what is due, Caesar, and move on and know that that will come back double, triple, quadruple. So I have to say, I've not been very happy with the government this week, but I prosper in spite of them. So I want to, and I think think this will actually release no this will release post me having to pay that bill October 15th I was about to say I think this releases on the day I get to pay that bill but we're going to continue our discussion of the Christian left and I laid out a really good foundation as far as what they are um, how they've started uh, really infiltrating the uh, the Christian faith the Christ followers the the church and um, even how this has been attempted many, many times in the past. We looked over how during Hitler's time, there were Germans who wanted to join uh, Christian beliefs with Hitler and uh, you know, basically just define what's going on and how uh, they are infiltrating the church. So I want to dive in on this episode and discuss among other things, the relationship between the Christian left and the state that's continued to evolve, and now they're strange partners. So those in the Christian left, quote, identified a gap between the needs of humanity and what the church currently offered, and so they decided to focus on social justice issues, like I previously read out of the book The Christian Left by Lucas Miles, which is Uh, a book that is recommended reading. And so the example is in the BLM episodes I did when I first started this podcast, we, I shared a video that you can find on YouTube of one of the, uh, original founders of BLM, which by the way, was an LGBTQ movement to destroy the nuclear family. Uh, they've since taken that off their website, but I read it myself personally and in this uh, YouTube video, they are conducting a ritual to call forth those that have been shot in their eyes uh, wrongly by police and to evoke their spirits. Now, this is straight up witchcraft. The shocking aspect of this video, which you can find in the show notes of the BLM episodes, is it was done in a Methodist church. So we have witchcraft, literal, in-your-face witchcraft done in a Methodist church. Then came partnerships with the government through grants. And so that led to fear of perceived intolerance and bigotry. Not to mention, you've got the whole 501c3 status that a lot of nonprofits, including churches, fear losing if they speak up about issues or politicians. And so for a response to that issue, you need to listen to the Black Robe Regiment episode. It's one of my favorites, and it dives into how the church was very integral in forming this nation uh, even before the Revolutionary War and um, how we were very integral in ending slavery in this nation and how the Johnson Amendment was formed and what you can do about it and the Supreme Court's position on it so far. The Supreme Court, hopefully, is the last uncorrupted Uh, branch of our government. I'm not quite sure it's completely without corruption. I have some suspicions, but so far, except on a few very important cases, they have been pro-speech, pro-Second Amendment, etc. So what's happened is, you know, we've um, joined with the governments and grants, etc., which I have no problem doing that. I mean, if you want to get a grant, but don't allow them to make you silent And the result of that in the 501c3s is that we have basically a spineless, silent church. And we've allowed ourselves and God to be kicked out of government and increasingly out of society, but also determine our rights to free speech, and therefore we've become irrelevant. Not to mention just some of the issues that are in the church as far as lack of integrity with finances, uh, sinful behavior uh, that's, you know, grotesque among leaders. I um, recently watched an episode 
uh, of a show where there was a latest scandal, you know, of a mega church and one of the lawyers it's representing, uh, I think at least one of the sexual assault victims said that years ago when he was a young Christian and he's a descendant of Billy Graham. I don't know if he's a son, if he's a, um, you know, nephew, if he's a, a grandson, but he said that he was told that that the higher up you go in churches, the less of Jesus you see. And that really, really impacted me deeply. I was like, man, that should not be the case. The higher up, if, if you can use those terms, because real servants of Jesus are actually the most servanthood. Um, but, you know, the, the idea that you see Jesus less, I mean, you should see him more up there. It, it, anyway, it just really got to me. And so, you know, we've got these issues in the church itself, as well as uh, the strange bedfellows between church and state, which, I mean, if you think about it, if you're a proponent of the separation of church and state, which is a myth, but if you're a proponent of it, then why are you taking money from the government? And why is the government giving you money? So, um, we've lost like discipleship and core tenets, like forgiveness of sin. You must be born again, being spirit filled. I mean, all of those things actually defining sin for what it is, uh, confronting it. I heard a statistic that I think, uh, it's over half of, um, people that say that they're Christians don't believe there's anything wrong with living with someone and having sex before marriage. That is clearly prohibited in the Bible. Um, and I don't want to sound legalistic, but it's just in there. And there's a good reason for that. There's a spiritual aspect to it. And God is trying to protect us. It's not trying to keep us from fun. Uh, actually, the most fun sex is within the confines of marriage, according to a lot of research. Uh, you know, a lot believe that the Bible is outdated. Uh, as far as LGBTQ matters and that, you know, the early church fathers were primitive in their thinking. Well, that's not the case either. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for it. So, you know, we've dumbed down the Bible, I guess you could say. And then on top of all that, we have political correctness, you know, so we can't use words uh, that we could use to use because it's not politically correct, which I could care less. I'm I don't even go with it, that kind of stuff, but you've got a lot of that going on. And then you have inclusivity. You know, let's include everybody. Well, Christianity by nature is actually exclusive. <laughs> like the gospel is the most inclusive message and invitation of all the religions. You know, it's Jesus Christ is God. He came as man. He died on the cross. He was resurrected in three days. If you believe this in your heart, confess it with your mouth, you are born again, which literally means born from above. So all are welcome to hear the good news and all are welcome to believe in the good news. But once you are in, it's actually exclusive, meaning you can't remain a homosexual. You cannot remain a lesbian. You can't remain an adulterer. You can't remain a uh, um, a thief or an angry person or a gossip, you can't remain that type of person because being born again slowly changes you, but it also requires you to lay aside things in the power in the name of Jesus Christ. And so you don't do it on your own. You have the Holy Spirit, but you can't remain a sinner as a Christian. In fact, the whole idea that you're still a sinner once you're born again is a misnomer. It's a myth. It's doctrine that people have made up from a few scriptures that didn't even mean that. And uh, I don't have time to get into all that. I have talked a lot about that on our ministry website. Uh, you can look under the Purple Rain series as well as the Hebrew series, especially, I believe, chapters 8 through 10. And uh, so to be a Christian, you must be a Christ follower. You must be born again. That's a core tenet. We're not a social club. We're not supposed to be a social justice organization. We are the body of Christ on earth. We are his ecclesia upon which he will build uh, and the gates of hell will not prevail. The revelation that he is the Christ is what we are built upon and uh, gates are portals. So you'll either have portals of God's presence or you'll have portals of demonic activity. So we are the government of God on earth. So with all of that said, 
I want to go into even more of what's going on when it comes to the Christian left, because they don't believe in these things. They believe that all people are good. They believe that there's an innocence to everybody. And the Bible says, no, no, no. You're all born as sinners. You're born with a fallen nature because of the decision of Adam and Eve. We didn't ask for this. It wasn't our fault. And for that reason, he sent his son. Father solved the problem. You just have to believe. And so we're going to dive into theological animosity. And I'm going to read a little bit to you from uh, this book, The Christian Left. And uh, it's a very interesting uh, situation going on here. So um, let's see. Let me start with this uh, first sentence. Much like the infamous tactical device of the ancient Greeks, the devil has gifted our modern day society with Trojan horses too ideologies that appear to be valuable contributions to our faith but are instead full full of morally subversive stratagems designed to unravel the very theological framework of the church the christian left a growing constituency of christians who have adopted either knowingly or unknowingly leftist socialistic and communist thinking ideals values and innovations It seems that the Trojan horses of the Christian left have been activated and even placed on display by mainline Christian institutions, faith-oriented content creators, and even the local church, in many cases without their knowledge. Oh, sorry about that, guys. That was my dad calling. Dad, I'll have to call you back. Uh, It says... This modern-day Trojan horse has been constructed with the deceptive lumber of superior morality, elevated knowledge, superior love, and holy language that calls into question anyone who disagrees with the left's proposed moral stances. After all, who can argue that the church shouldn't be involved in caring for the poor, offering free health care for the sick, or welcoming the stranger from a foreign land? Sadly, though, these mantras are all a ruse, disguised as a gift of compassion to the church, all the while an ambush against true Christian values waiting inside. Okay, so uh, I want to dive into this guy that it's an article um, that U.S. Army Chaplain and Dean of Holy Trinity Orthodox Seminary Alexander F.C. Webster wrote for Touchstone Magazine, and he discussed the disorientation of the Orthodox uh, Church. He insightfully drew attention to the increasing tendency of Orthodox leftists to mimic Hillary Clinton's infamous basket of deplorables insult against half of her opponent's supporters. Although Webster was focused on the infringements of leftist thinking on the Orthodox faith, faith, the Christian left is also responsible for creating animosity toward Bible-believing Christians of all denominations. This Trojan horse tactic has largely succeeded by creating a dualistic us-versus-them culture within society and even within the church. The left has weaponized terms like fundamentalist, right, and traditional in order to paint a very specific picture of their opposition. Bible-believing, church-going Christians whose society once viewed as a moral backbone of our great republic are now viewed by many as close cousins to other extreme fundamentalist groups and, quote, Christian cults such as a Westboro Baptist Church or even worse, the KKK. Only in the new world order of the Christian left are those who desire to protect the lives of the unborn, hold a biblical view of marriage, and support border security labeled bigoted, misogynistic, and racist. The strong moral division within the church might lead one to wonder whether the church has moved left or if the left has moved into the church. And regardless, I fear this is just the beginning of the persecution of the American church. But in order for the Christian left to garner garner a stronger foothold among the masses and effectively propagate theological and spiritual enmity within the mainstream church, it must do two things. One, Create animosity toward conservatives and traditionalists who hold to biblical ideas regarding social issues. And two, it must create a sense of moral superiority among an elite group of uh, people. Now, here's some of the things that lines that will come from the Christian left. Uh, See if you recognize any of these. One's Jesus accepts everyone. Jesus would never get in the way of the love between two people. 
Jesus was a refugee. Jesus accepts foreigners and strangers. God doesn't create walls that prevent us coming to Him. People need to live their truth. Some people are just born gay, or bi, or transgender. A real Christian accepts everyone. By using arguments like this, the left has systematically hijacked Christian and conservative themes in order to validate the libertinism and moral erosion that the left not only embraces, but also desires to force en masse. Progressivism is attractive to formerly biblical Christians because it offers a sort of halfway house that allows them to remain largely religious and socially responsible, but relieves them from the responsibility of holding to what they consider antiquated biblical teachings, such as miracles, the authority of scripture, sexual holiness, or the sinfulness of humanity. They also use familiar terms. I don't know if you've noticed this. Obama really started doing this. He would use what we'd call holy language. In fact, you know, everybody's saying that they're waking up. It's an awakening. It's a movement. They're woke. And so those are all terms that would be familiar to us as Christians. And so it becomes maybe easier and easier for us to accept that these people that have very anti-biblical ideas are maybe, in fact, Christians. So here are some of the terms that have been stolen uh, by the Christian left. God bless you. Hallelujah. Amen. Inclusive. God's plan. Unconditional love. Social justice. Acceptance. Spiritual but not religious. And moral obligation. So what they're doing by using this speech, uh, they're introducing liberal agenda and they're able to piously advance their causes and then look like saints while they do it. And so this is a result of a self-righteous finger-pointing and claiming of the moral high road. So they divide the church into two separate sects, the spiritual elite and the bigoted fundamentalists. So that's a lot of, um, from pages 17 to 20 in that book, um, paraphrased some of it, added my own ideas just to make that uh, clear. So don't forget that the Christian left, they do not view the Bible as the word of God. It's merely the story of God or a narrative of man's writings about God. They do not believe that the Holy Spirit breathed upon the words of inspired men who wrote the books of the Bible. And just learning and discovering how the Bible was formed, what we would maybe say the Protestant Bible, but even some of the apocryphal books, it's a fascinating story. And only God could put together a book like that. They have evidence from ancient uh, scrolls uh, over you know hundreds of years where you could literally piece the Bible completely together and it would read exactly as it reads today, uh, except for maybe like two scriptures. How does that happen? That does not happen. It's unbelievable. And so the evidence of this, not believing that the word is the inspired word of God, is uh, most evident in the area of gender and sexuality. And so then they have this, you know, idea of embrace secularization, but reject secularism. And so secularization is separation from religious or spiritual connection or influences. It's a transfer of property from ecclesiastical to civil possession or use. Secularism is a philosophy or, uh, is a philosophy and a doctrine that rejects religion, especially in ethics. The attitude that religion should have no place in civil affairs. And uh, so let me, and I may have that backwards. They may actually... Yeah, they embrace secularization, but they uh, reject secularism. Okay, so secular leftists, with the full support of the Christian left, prefer a double standard spiritual climate in which the church must bow to the ever-changing politically correct demands of the state, while the state remains exempt from any direction or interference from the church. In fact, any attempt by the church to influence the state is immediately criticized as a breach of separation of church and state, even though the left is constantly violating their own mantra by dictating that the church should, what the church should believe and do. This practice by the left, which can only be described as Constantian, places the state as the head of the church, insomuch as the church does exactly what the state desires. In other words, the state should be allowed to tell us 
what to say and what to do and what to believe as Christians, but don't you dare as a Christian bring the church or Christianity into any state uh, arena. Very, very interesting. But most people that are on the left are extremely hypocritical, uh, and often they don't even realize it. Now listen to this. Um, This, of course, was uh, back in the Constantine time, but um, they uh, bring it over. Let's see, who is this that's saying this? Just so I can quote him uh, or her properly. Ooh, I can't even pronounce the name. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, Aristotle, and then I'm going to spell his name. (laughs) P-A-P-A-N-I-K-O-L-A-O-U. And he discusses the evidence of embracing secularization in his article, Byzantium, Orthodoxy, and Democracy. He wrote this in 2003, and he is a modern leftist and professor of theology at Fordham uh, University. And he says, in relation to a democratic form of the common good, the church must accept its own limits and recognize that the goal is not the formation of a Eucharistic community through persuasion, but rather, now listen to this, the construction of a community in which diversity and multiculturalism are affirmed and protected, in which the recognition of such diversity and multiculturalism must be enforced if they are not voluntarily accepted, a.k.a. socialism. According to him, the church must be so subservient to the state and its politically correct agenda of diversity and multiculturalism that if it does not, the state would resort to enforcing such values if not voluntarily accepted. Now, we're, we're headed to a, a one-world order, one-world government. That's obvious. The Bible says <clears throat> it's going to happen. The question is, will our nation be in line with Antichrist doctrine and ideas, or are they going to be a sheep nation? Okay, so I want to take you back into ancient history, and I want to take you back to Nimrod. He is one of the best examples of socialism in opposition to the original intent uh, for mankind that God had. Nimrod's rule was the beginning of socialism. As in all socialistic governments, he would turn a message of hope and prosperity to a rule of tyranny and oppression. His need to provoke mankind to hold contempt for God was a prerequisite to seducing them into following him. This is the same as demoralization used by communists, socialists, and progressives, and Satanists today. Dr. Jim Richards, who is um, talking about this, went on to say Nimrod and his followers began to build a tower. Interestingly, the tower was made of bricks, not stones. The Bible calls us living stones, not living bricks. Stones represent individuality. Each one is different. It's never been God's plan for all men to be the same, but socialism claims it has a better plan, more righteous than God's. So the Christian left are partnering with socialists, communists, elitists, and Islamists in the erection of a new tower, the One World Church. Because here's the thing, the Tower of Babel stemmed from its construction by a civilization that was unified with a collective dialect. Okay, and so in order to be part of what they were doing, you had to help them build this tower. It was like a socialistic situation, and then God confused the languages. Like Babel, the popes and the imams' verbal ziggurat was constructed through promises of peace, harmony, and safety, but utopia comes at a heavy theological price. The denial of Jesus Christ as the only one who has access to God. Now, what he's referring to, is there was a gathering of Pope Francis, the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, Ahmad Al-Tayeb, and then uh, another person, ooh, who was it? Let's see, Imam, the Pope, well, maybe it was just them. And this is what they said. We who believe in God in the final meeting with him and his judgment on the basis of our our religious and moral responsibility and through this document call upon ourselves, upon the leaders of the world, as well as the architects of international policy 
and world economy to work strenuously to spread the culture of tolerance and of living together in peace, to intervene at the earliest opportunity to stop the shedding of innocent blood and bring an end to wars, conflicts, environmental decay, and the moral and cultural decline that the world is presently experiencing. Now, so what basically they're going to um, have an interfaith fellowship and agreement and a cohabitation. So for pluralism, which is basically all roads lead to God. It's, you know, all roads lead to him. It doesn't matter which way it is. The Bible says that there's one way. Jesus is the way. There are no other ways. But pluralism believes that there are. And so for it to exist, no one God can be elevated above another God because by nature it's polytheistic. And so it acknowledges the value and the diversity of multiple gods. And it cannot by definition also be Christian because Christianity is unashamedly monotheistic. And so what this is, is we're seeing a fusion of different faiths and different faith leaders that are coming together to form a one world religion. And that one world religion was birthed in ancient uh, Babylon. Nimrod, if you study him out, was the first world ruler. And he established a one world religion that's been trying to raise its ugly head and take over since that time. Revelation calls this Mystery Babylon, and it's a fusion of religious uh, thought with economy. And, uh, and really, the, the main god is mammon, even for the religions. It's uh, power and it's money. But uh, if you look at the story of Nimrod, which I've done an in-depth um, training on him years ago, is very interesting. And it's like a tale of two cities, Babel and um, Jerusalem, which Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, is actually the church. But Nimrod is the founder of Babylon, Assyria, and other nations that oppose God and his people in the Old Testament. And when you look at his name, where it says he's a mighty warrior or mighty hunter, that actually, if you go in deeper, means that he, like I said, was a first world ruler and that he shook his fist in the face of God and decided, we're not going to do anything you say. We're going to build our tower. We're going to have one world uh, religion and one world government, etc. In fact, a ziggurat was an ancient pagan uh, tower that at the top was designed to create a portal to access demonic mysteries. Uh, so, you know, it, this whole thing is ancient and it's evil and it's infiltrating our church. So then you have how the Christian left redefine love. And we're going to end on this note of love, agape, God love. So before we go into the definition of love from the Christian left, I want to first look at the definition of, or no, I'm sorry, before I go into the definition of God's love, I want to first go into the definition of love from the Christian left, and uh, which that in itself is an oxymoron. But anyway, so if we go over to page 48 in this fabulous book, it says, um, make sure I'm in the right place, yeah. Okay, it says, uh, the claim that the left has fallen prey to misguided definition of love may seem odd as many view the left as a party that cares. The desire of many on the Christian left to express love by refusing to turn a blind eye to the immigrant, the sick, and the poor emanates, I believe, from a truly compassionate and altruistic place. This is why the less version of love is often described by terms such as acceptance, tolerance, and freedom of choice which without a doubt easily garners the support from genuinely kind-hearted um, people. Now, for instance, William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a Christian left task force, went so far as to accuse evangelical Christians of theological malpractice toward gays, immigrants, and members of other religions. Members of the Christian left, like Barber, use love as a basis of their arguments against traditionally held values and attempt to persuade traditional adherents of Christianity to adopt more inclusive social mores. Such criticism of conservative Christians among the Christian left include 
How can you love undocumented citizens without giving them free passage into our country? How can you love those who identify as LGBTQ without affirming their sexual preferences? How can you express compassion toward the woman with an unwanted pregnancy without defending her right to abort her child? Those are the questions they ask. But where the left takes a decidedly different detour from the biblical definition of love and its stance on personal freedom, that's obvious. Essentially, this new form of love takes a position. To agree with me is to love me. To contradict me is to hate me. Therefore, you must allow me to indulge in my personal freedoms regardless of the negative impact this adult indulging may have on me or anyone else in society. Practically speaking, with Christ as our example, love is limiting my freedom in order to give life to another. And whereas a balance of grace and truth always guides biblical love, the love of the left is without perimeters, is void of rebuke and warning, and embraces truth only as long as it doesn't violate personal preference. Perhaps an even more disturbing thought surrounding and shaping the left's blurred lines of love is a refusal to embrace a notion of personal responsibility. Uh, Philip J. Lee prophesies about the frightening effect of the left's theological shift away from the notion of personal responsibility in Against the Protestant Gnostics. He rightly concludes, or Lee rightly concludes, that many in the Christian left now hold a view that one's personal choices are no longer a matter of mea culpa, that is, sin is no longer my fault. From this position, one could argue that one's actions are simply the result of some other force acting upon humankind, like the cosmos, or perhaps even God himself, and remove all cause for personal culpability of one's behaviors. Now, can you imagine? So if we take this idea of love that they have, you have to redefine sin. So that means, if we keep going down this road, that basically, if the idea of love is that your actions are the result of some other force acting upon you, then that would excuse child molesters. That would excuse rapists. That would excuse murderers. Because some force other than themselves is acting upon them. They were made that way. See, that that's the thing. In fact, one of the uh, first serial killers in this country, H.H. H. Holmes, said he was born to kill. He was born evil and he was born to murder. I mean, not to obviously equate homosexuality or lesbianism to a serial killer but the same argument itself is made i was born this way so in his idea he was born a murderer well in their idea they were born that way and so this whole idea that there's some outside force that's making you who you are is ludicrous even christians take this too far if they do any sin they say the devil made me do it no actually you may, be, may have been tempted, but the Bible says you were tempted with what was already in your heart. There may have been a demonic influence, but the only reason it gained an, an inroad is because your heart was entertaining that idea. And the more you meditate on it and the more you begin to fantasize about it, then all of a sudden you find yourself doing it. And then many of us, if we find ourselves in some type of sin, exposed or we start to feel bad and we need to deal with it, we blame the devil. No. Take personal responsibility. Deal with the issues of your heart, your soul. Renew your mind in the word and stop that uh, pattern. So with this idea of love, you again have to redefine sin. So today, guided by the new Gnostic thinking, doctrine that everyone is born sinful is now not true. It appears that the church's position on sin has now shifted even more to the left, evolving into the question, well, is there sin at all? More than just a theological interpretation, the liberal opposition to even the idea of sin is born out of necessity. That is, in order to maintain an adherence to such libertine positions regarding gay marriage, illegal immigration, abortion, these activities can no longer be defined as sin, but rather as just another social progression of the fluid morality that somehow guides us all. Okay, so the first and more extreme view of sin is that sin is simply a man-made social construct and not an actual offense against God. So any activities that limit, restrict, or otherwise interfere with personal freedoms and simultaneously cause little to no harm to someone else are held by the modern leftists as simply personal preferences. Okay, so not to keep going back to serial killers, but I am a true crime podcaster as well. 
Ted Bundy loved killing. And when he was asked if he felt guilty, he said guilt is a a societal construct. It's a man-made thing. I don't feel guilty at all. What's one life taken? I mean, that's literally, that was his perspective. It doesn't matter. If I kill one person, it's not going to have that big of an impact. Now, the second definition of sin imagined by the Christian left ironically originates from mostly right-leaning voters who have unknowingly adopted a left concept of sin. And so, um, because of the finished work of the cross, they argue sin does not matter for the believer and should no longer even be in consideration in the Christian life. This logic essentially claims that because Christians belong to God, the concept of sin no longer applies to them. In both the sin is not real and the sin does not matter camps of the Christian left, we find permissive stances regarding a wide array, array of social issues from blanket amnesty for illegal immigration and wealth redistribution programs to more personal attitudes toward recreational drug use, the use of alcohol, and sexual promiscuity. Okay, now, as far as the believer, obviously, and, and I don't want to get too deep into theology, but here's the idea. You know, John said, I'm writing these things to to you, beloved, so that if you sin, blah, 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 blah. For the early church, the old man is dead. It's dead to sin. Dead men don't sin. That's in Romans chapter 6. However, the other idea behind their writings is that as long as we're on this earth and in these fleshly bodies, you know, these sacks of, of flesh, some might say, um, we're going to always have to be on guard and we will be susceptible to it. So just like the Lord was tempted in all points, yes, without, yet without sin, as long as we're on the earth, we will be tempted as well. But the more we renew our thinking in the word, the more we know what is the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. We look more and more like Jesus Christ when he walked on the earth. So what that means is we sin less and less. We're not denying that sin is here, and we're not denying that we're not susceptible to sin. What we're saying is, I'm no longer living sin conscious. I'm God conscious. In fact, in Hebrews, uh, I believe between chapters 8 and 10, it says that one of the main reasons Jesus came was to get rid of the sin consciousness we have. So what does that mean? We no longer live with our focus on sin like the law did. Instead, we focus on the law of love and Christ in us, the expectation of glory. So the combat of sin is not sourced in following a law. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, it says that the strength or the dunamis power, the supernatural power of sin is strengthened by the law. So the law actually strengthens sin. But when we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, we are freed from law. There's now only two commandments, love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. So sin still exists. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you will never sin again. Now, let me define, now that we have that out of the way, let me define God love. Now, this is one of the best definitions I ever heard years ago from Rick Renner, a Greek scholar, and this is from his Sparkling Gems from the Greek. It's a great devotional. But he says, agape, or love, is a Greek word, agape, that a word that describes the highest, finest, and most noble kind of love. In the New Testament, it is a single word that is used to describe the love of God. As noted earlier, see July 23, which I'm going to read a part of, uh, from that. The word agape is so filled with deep emotion and meaning that it is one of the most difficult words to translate in the New Testament. Agape occurs when an individual sees, recognizes, understands, or appreciates the value of an object or a person, causing the viewer to behold this object or person in great esteem, awe, admiration, wonder, and sincere appreciation. Such great respect is awakened in the heart of the observer for the object or person he is beholding that he is compelled to love it. In fact, his love for that person or object is so strong that it's irresistible. In the New Testament, perhaps the best example of agape is found in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In the phrase, for God so loved the world, the word love is the word agape. 
the human race was so precious to God and he loved man so much or so deeply that his heart was stirred to reach out and act and do something to save him. Isn't that amazing? So in other words, God's love drove him to action. You see, agape love so profoundly that it knows no limits or boundaries in how far, wide, high, and deep it will go to show that love to its recipient. If necessary, agape love will even sacrifice itself for the sake of that object or person it so deeply cherishes. You can see from this description why agape is the highest, finest, most noble form of love. Now, in the one he was referring to in the July section, because again, it's like a devotional, it's really, really good. He says, this means that when God looked upon the human race, he stood in awe of mankind, even though man was lost in sin. God admired man. He wondered at man. He held mankind in the highest appreciation. Even though mankind was held captive by Satan at that moment, God looked upon the world and saw his own image man. The human race was so precious to God and he loved man so deeply that his heart was stirred to reach out and do something to save him. In other words, God's love drove him to action. Agape is a love that has no strings attached. It isn't looking for what it can get, but for what it can give. It's awe of the one who is loved is so deep that's compelled to shower love upon that object or person regardless of the response. This is the profound love God has for the human race. For he loved man when he was still lost in sin with no ability to love him back. God simply loved mankind without any thought or expectation of receiving love in return. Much, much different definition of God who is love than most religion will give you. Now, for the, uh, from the Passion Translation, it says an Aramaic word for love, huba, which Jesus spoke Aramaic, by the way. Uh, and it is a homonym. It also means to set on fire. It is difficult to fully express the meaning of this word and translate it into English. You could say that the Aramaic concept is burning love or fiery love coming from the inner depths of the heart as an eternal energy an active power of bonding hearts and lives and secure relationships. The Greek word is agape, which describes the highest form of love. It is a love God has for his people. It's an intense affection <clears throat> excuse me, that must be demonstrated. It's a loyal, endless, and unconditional commitment of love. Feelings are attached to this love. It is not abstract, but devoted to demonstrating the inward feelings of Lord love toward one another with acts of kindness and benevolence. What's amazing about the word agape is it didn't even exist in the Greek prior to the New Testament. They literally had to make it up. And it's a combination of a noun and a verb. So it's an object as well as an action. But agape always involves action. So from these definitions, you might think that some of the leftist thought fits, like we've already discussed. But let's examine it a little bit deeper. How did Jesus deal with sin? So the true definition of love is when Jesus, God in the flesh, came to die in our place. God is love. Jesus demonstrated the highest act of love by dying for us while we still were sinners and hated him. So Father saw our inability to save ourselves and sent the solution, His Son. However, He didn't ignore sin, but He became sin for us. He died in our place, taking the punishment we deserved, and then He was resurrected so that we can be resurrected. That's why in John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus that one must be born again, which literally means, again, born from above. So when we're born again, by confessing our agreement with His work on the cross and His resurrection— our sinful nature is crucified. You're not fighting your old nature. You're fighting your old way of thinking because your old nature is dead, according to Romans 6. So we're resurrected into new life because we now possess his nature. That's why you must be born from above. So sin no longer has power over us. Now, real quick, unbelief in Jesus is the only thing that will send somebody to hell a place that wasn't even created for humans. It was created for the enemy and his angels. Sin, all sin, is a result of unbelief. Sin does not send you to hell. Unbelief does. So Jesus gave us everything we need to live a godly life. His own nature, his Holy Spirit, the power of God, 
and His Word. The secret to possessing eternal life is believing in the one whom God sent. That was from Jesus Himself. Now, that's all great. But how did He deal with sinners defined as, as those who were living a specific life source of unbelief in the New Testament, the Gospels uh, in particular? Well, for the religious leaders who refused to believe, He called them sons of hell, whitewashed tombs, etc., he drove greedy, peop- greedy people out of his temple with a whip. For the rich young ruler who refused to let go of his idol, he allowed him to walk away. Ananias and Sapphira were delivered over to death, and they died instantly because they lied to the Holy Spirit. The list goes on and on in the New Testament. God is love, and he removes anything that offends it. So if a person refused to repent, he let them walk away. In fact, Luke 17, 3 says that we forgive if a person has repented, meaning we allow them back into our fellowship only if they have repented. So if we go back to the Christian left's definition of love, love means accepting homosexuality, open borders, and giving away all that we own, which for them was saying Jesus was socialist, which, by the way, later Paul also said that if you don't work, you don't eat, and a person who refuses to take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever which I'm not sure how you could get worse than that as far as, you know, the consequences and all of that. Not saying a person who doesn't believe is terrible because, again, that would be, you know, not loving people as Father loved us. But the idea is you got to work. In fact, there were also uh, things in place where if they gave to the poor, you had to be a widow and an orphan. You, you did not have any ability to take care of yourself. And... Uh, you had to be Christian. Now, of course, they did give to the poor in general, but when it came to taking the funds of the church, they distributed it to the widows and the orphans in the church. That's what the seven initial deacons were for. So there were requirements. And finally, you gave voluntarily. You weren't forced to give to the poor like the socialists want us to do. So where does the acceptance stop? Like I said, should we accept and legalize pedophilia, marriage between a child and parent, heroin use, domestic violence, and other harmful activities all in the name or the Christian left idea of love? You might think I'm exaggerating, but there are actually movements that want these very things. In fact, in my own town in New Mexico, a woman and her son wanted to fight the law that said a Christian could not, or a a mother or father could not marry their child. They wanted to marry. That's insane. Is it love to literally hand your child harmful drugs like meth and fentanyl, even to their own death from overdose? True love intervenes to remove all that harm and offend love. Missing the mark, the idea of sin, is more accurately defined as missing the mark of the way things are supposed to be. In layman's terms, sin is more akin to missing out on what life could be like or missing out on the right kind of life. A true understanding of the nature of sin must agree that behavior matters, that all behaviors have consequences, and that some consequences are worse than others. What follows is that all other behaviors have the consequence of better outcomes, outcomes that ensure a better quality of life for all, and therefore the ideas that shape these behaviors should receive more merit. Such behaviors could have definitions such as more loving and less sinful, and the understanding that they lead humanity closer to life as it should be, or as God intended. It is love that It is a love that is without a doubt based on personal freedom and that offers an unconditional love in spite of choices that are made, but admonishes the selection of right choices as these decisions offer a better way of life. Let's see. Perhaps the greatest sign of counterfeit love is force. God never forces allegiance or strong arm someone into believing in him. So true love is obsessed with the value of the object of love and for that reason is able to recognize anything that will harm the object of their love and that it must be dealt with decisively and without compromise. God's love will never violate the word nor empower harmful activities. Personal choice and freedom is never supposed to be at the expense of another. It says in, um, I think this is Romans 13, 8 through 10, don't owe anything to anyone except your understanding 
outstanding debt to continually love one another. For the one who learns to love has fulfilled every requirement of the law. For the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And every other commandment can be summed up in these words. Love and value others the same way you love and value yourself. Love makes it impossible to harm one another. So love fulfills all that the law requires. Isn't that amazing? Okay, so we got to beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. So uh, I want to read a little bit more from him, and then we're going to end this. If you are a person of the Christian faith, one of the tenets of our faith is free will. One of the tenets of our democracy is that we have a separation of church and state, and under no circumstances are we supposed to be imposing our faith on other people, stated Senator Kirsten Gillibrand during a 2019 press conference opposing the Georgia heartbeat bill. Gillibrand, like other members of the Christian left, cleverly uses the left's weaponized version of love to advance the left's agenda and create a world where Christianity is permanently quarantined within the four walls of the church and unable to oppose the moral failures of our nation. In other words, she was quoting and using Christian language to support killing babies in the womb. This happens all the time. Concealed within the life and death of John the Baptist is a lesson for today. The gospel is celebrated until it's not. Mark's gospel reveals that the tragic irony of John's death was that Herod enjoyed listening to him. Not unlike Hitler's initially benign sentiments toward Christians in Nazi Germany or Gillibrand's tolerance toward the church until it began speaking against her agenda, Herod took no issue with John's gospel until... It addressed his own sin, his unlawful marriage to his brother's wife. So when we look at the Christian left and their expert use of Christian words and scriptures and doctrine to support things that seem good, they seem like good things, taking care of the poor, taking care of those that can't take care of themselves, embracing the stranger into our land, etc., etc. When we look at these things, we can agree these are good ideas. The only difference is that for the left, there is no such thing as biblical uh, truth. They're stories. For the left, there's no such thing as um, you know love that prohibits personal choices that harm a person or others. We have to accept everybody as they are. True Christianity doesn't require anybody to change. We need to be inclusive. Amen to that, brother. So that's that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with people who stand up in a church and tell people that being vaccinated is God's purpose, His plan, His will, and that that individual is an apostle and that the people that are listening are also her apostles who need to go out and convince other people to be vaccinated. And if you don't get vaccinated, we'll force you to. We'll threaten your livelihood. We'll threaten your job. That's where we've come to. And people are using Jesus Christ and the Word to make these things happen. And it's time for Christians to wise up. So like I said, the good news is people are wising up. They're starting to stand up. And we better do it. Because my fear is if we don't, we're going to lose this country. Or we're going to end up in something worse. So we are recommended reading The Christian Left by Lucas Miles. Highly, highly recommended. And next week, we'll talk about is God in control or in charge? Till next then, next time, God bless America. <music>